we all thought too legit to quit was going to be something too. So let's just move <laughs> along. <laughs> Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zulkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. When it comes to his art, this Texas-born musician does not particularly like to monkey around. Heir to a fortune in office supply money, Mike Nesmith became trapped by the fame born of an audition he attended on a lark. Forced to choose between outward success and his own artistic principles, he chose to listen to the band within his heart. Today we're talking about Mike Nesmith of the Monkees. But first, what's your favorite musical act that you've seen at the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo? Well, I actually have not ever really seen a musical act at the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. I did judge some cattle for a FFA uh, competition there one year, but I did get to hear and see the sound check for the roadies for the Beach Boys. So there you go. Sound check. Check, check. <laughs> One, two, sibilance, sibilance. Check, check. You got Good. to see the, the, the pre-show. The pre-show, yeah. Good vibrations, vibrations, <laughs> vibrations. Wow. That was the extent. Oh, boy. Well, I, uh, it, it was a long time ago uh, and since I've been to the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, but I do remember going to uh, see Reba McIntyre, and uh, she was uh, really great. Uh, and this was back in the, uh, this is like 90, maybe. Um, and this was actually just before uh, there's a tragic plane crash that uh, killed eight members of her of her band. And, uh, and, but that band was, uh, they were out of sight. And, uh, the interesting thing was, is when the band went around the stage and introduced themselves, they each did like, um, old TV theme songs. So everybody liked the Andy Griffith song, the Andy Griffith show and the theme to Star Trek. And it was just funny because they just, it was, Rockford. It, it was just <laughs> really fun. Yeah. The Rockford files. They did like little fun <laughs> intros from different like old TV shows. And, and I thought it was neat. It was neat. But, uh. Yeah, she's a, she's quite a performer. It's a, she's a great artist. Yeah. Now, my parents would have to confirm for me which acts I actually saw when I was a child, because that used to be a thing that we did. Is we would go every year to the the Houston livestock livestock show and rodeo, and um, I remember for sure that as a child I saw Charlie Pride in his prime. Um, I seem to remember possibly seeing Alabama in the same time period, but I don't remember if just my parents saw them or I was there. I don't remember. Anyway. So I'm sure a Confederate flag was involved. Possibly. <laughs> so I, I was, I went to a couple of shows when I was a kid, but the one that stands out to me was when I went back as an adult toward the latter years of the Astrodome era of the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, and I got to see Def Leppard in concert again. Um, mostly I remember it because they were on a teeny tiny round stage in the middle of the Astrodome and this was you know the Astrodome was in its decline there weren't giant video screens everywhere so really we just saw tiny little dots moving around <laughs> way out there in the middle of the dirt so um that's what I remember all right wow. well there you go but still it's Def Leppard it's awesome yes Though a member of a made-up band, Mike Nesmith and his fellow monkeys, for that matter, were actually quite talented musicians who became ever more dedicated to their art. 
But the business side of the entertainment world has very little use for art if profits are on the line, and it was only after the monkeys ended that Mike Nesmith could actually pursue his vision. Though not as prominent as his work with the monkeys, the work outside the band has had a far greater impact on entertainment than when it was just on the TV show. Robert Michael Nesmith was born on December 30, 1942, in Houston. His parents divorced when he was only four, and his mother Betty brought him to Dallas to live closer to her family. There she took a job as a secretary to support herself and her son. When Mike was 13, Betty invented the typewriter correction fluid that would become known as liquid paper. This was while she was working as a secretary. She went on to build the Liquid Paper Corporation into a multi-million dollar international company over the next 25 years before they sold it to Gillette for $48 million. So he had money. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not chump change. As a child, Nesmith attended Dallas public schools, and while he was an indifferent student, he did participate in a number of extracurricular activities. His love of entertaining was evident, and at a young age, he participated in the choir and drama departments at Thomas Jefferson High School. When he was 15, he enrolled in the Dallas Theater Center teen program, where he was featured in several plays. Nesmith didn't bother graduating from high school, but instead enlisted with the Air Force in 1960. He completed his basic training at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, and he then trained as an aircraft mechanic at Shepard Air Force Base in Wichita Falls before he was stationed at the Clinton-Sherman Air Force Base, which is near Burns Flat, Oklahoma. Nesmith obtained his GED in the Air Force and was given an honorable discharge in 1962. And we thank you for your service, Mike. (laughs) After his discharge, Nesmith enrolled in San Antonio College, where he met John Cuny, better known in later years as John London. The two began collaborating, and they won the first San Antonio College Talent Award with a mix of standard folk songs and a few original songs written by Nesmith. Nesmith and London would go on to work together for years to come. Another long-lasting relationship that Nesmith formed at San Antonio College was with Phyllis Ann Barber, who became his wife in 1963. Nesmith focused more on writing songs and poetry while in college, and he, Phyllis, and London moved to Los Angeles so Mike could pursue his career as a singer-songwriter. Phyllis was pregnant with their first child, Christian Duvall. Mike began singing in folk clubs soon after their arrival. He also found a job as Hootmaster, or Master of Ceremonies, for the Monday night Hootenannies at the Troubadour. Uh, This West Hollywood nightclub featured new artists, and he met, socialized, and performed with many members of the L.A. music scene. Randy Sparks, from the Grammy-winning New Christy Minstrels, offered Nesmith a publishing deal for his songs. The new Christy Minstrels also had a part in launching the careers of such notable music stars as Kenny Rogers, Gene Clark, Kim Carnes, and Barry McGuire. His recording career truly began in this time period, and he released a single on the Highness label. Nesmith had moderate success, and in 1965 he recorded a single for Eden Records, and then two more for Colpix Records. This happened to be Davy Jones's label, although the two men didn't meet until later. While at this publishing house, the ad for the Monkees TV series auditions were brought to Nesmith's attentions. Now, according to an interview he gave in May of 2015, the ad asked for, quote, four insane boys, so he applied for the job. For those who don't know who the Monkees are, this was a blatant play by some television executives to create 
the American Beatles, some mop top kids who were, you know, sex symbols and comedy stars, and they were going to have a TV show and be music stars. It's kind of a, a early version of a boy band. Yeah, it was. A, yeah, it was a boy band. Exactly. So Nesmith played it cool during the audition, wearing a wool hat to keep his hair out of his eyes while he rode a motorcycle. Producers remembered, quote, wool hat, and in October 1965, he was given the role as Mike, the guitar player in the Monkees TV show. His wool hat would actually become a signature for his look, and his blasé expression was the hallmark of his attitude. Although the Monkees were a constructed band intended for a TV audience, it did require real-life musical talent, or at least singing ability, since their contract included live performances and tours. Screen Gems, the Monkees production company, bought the rights of all Nesmith's songs to use on the show. Many of the songs he wrote for the Monkees, including The Girl I Knew Somewhere, Mary Mary, and Listen to the Band, became minor pop hits. The Monkees' TV show lasted until 1968, though the band continued to perform and tour until early 1970. As with other members of the band, Nesmith quickly grew frustrated by the manufactured image of the group and the controlling nature of Don Kirshner, the producer, who essentially wanted them to be puppets for his own creativity. Although he was able to write and produce two songs on every album, and many of his songs were used during the scenes in the series, Nesmith was the most vocal detractor of the Monkees' image and the strict requirements placed upon them. The members of the Monkees bridled under the tight control of Kirshner almost from the beginning, despite all their success. After an infamous incident where Nesmith punched a hole in the wall, the Monkees succeeded in ridding themselves of their supervisor. They took control of their destiny, but only recorded one album together with their freedom, 1967's Headquarters. The band always had a challenge to their credibility as artists when it was revealed that they hadn't actually played on the first few albums, though they did perform those songs live when they went on tour. Nesmith only made this credibility problem worse when he called the band's first non-studio press conference. At this press conference, he called their second album, More of the Monkees, quote, probably the worst record in the history of the world. Nonetheless, their talent and popularity meant that their singles and albums continued to sell well, at least until the release of the movie Head. Head faced an uphill battle for popularity since it was an unusual film and it was poorly advertised. Several technical issues meant that its release was delayed for months and what hype it originally had faded by the time it debuted. Head was widely panned by both critics and fans, uh, though like so many other films, it's gained a cult following in the years since its release. Now, Nesmith's final contracted appearance with the Monkees would be a TV commercial for Kool-Aid and Nerf Balls that occurred in April of 1970. Uh, given his attitude toward the band at the time, the commercial ends appropriately with a frowning Nesmith stating, Nerf's a nerf. By this time, Nesmith was completely fed up with his fame, and as the band's popularity and success continued to fall, he negotiated release from his contract. While the company agreed to let him go, Nesmith still had three years left on the contract and had to pay back a penalty of $150,000. The bite from that sacrifice for his artistic integrity was felt for almost a decade until he received the inheritance from his mother's liquid paper fortune in 1980. In a later interview with Playboy magazine, he said of that time, quote, I had to start telling little tales to the tax man while they were putting tags on the furniture. 
<laughs> Though Nesmith continued to produce songs with the Monkees to the end, he withheld many songs that he wrote from the final albums so he could release them on his post-Monkees solo records. After the show ended, the Monkees, and especially Mike Nesmith, seemed eager to distance themselves from the fame they'd earned. Even 20 years later, when they did have a reunion, which was Mickey Dolenz, Peter Tork, and Davy Jones, Mike Nesmith did not appear with the band. He did appear, however, with the band at an encore at the Greek Theater on September 7, 1986. In a later interview, he stated, quote, When Peter called up and said, We're going to go out. Do you want to go? I was booked. But if you get to L.A., I said, I'll play. He appeared with the other three members of the band again in 1989 when they received their star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. In 1995, the four members of the Monkees gathered to record their last studio album. Nesmith also wrote and directed a Monkees television special entitled Hey, Hey, It's the Monkees. To support the reunion, Mike joined the other three on a brief tour of the UK in 1997. This was the last appearance of all four of the members of the band performing together. Davy Jones passed away in 2012. Davy Jones passed away in 2012, but Nesmith reunited with Dolans and Torque to perform concerts throughout the United States that year as well as the next two. The trio were backed by a seven-piece band that included Mike's son Christian. They performed 27 Monkeys songs. When he was asked why he decided to return, Nesmith answered, quote, I never really left. It's a part of my youth that's always active in my thoughts and part of my overall work as an artist. It stays in a special place. Now, the Monkees and their TV show were a relatively minor, if very prominent, part of Mike Nesmith's career. When the show ended, Mike enrolled part-time at UCLA studying American and music history. In 1969, Nesmith formed the group First National Band with John London, John Ware, and Orville Red Rose. John Ware of the Corvettes approached Mike about creating this band, and Mike agreed only with the assurance that Red Rose would be included in the group. Nesmith's bottled creativity was explosive when it was finally released, and the First National Band um, had three albums in 1970 alone. Nesmith wrote most of the songs for the band, including Joanne, which was on the charts for seven weeks in 1970, rising as high as number one on the Billboard Top 40. They had several other songs that had broke the Top 100 as well. Though they did not achieve notable success, the first national band has often been credited with being among the pioneers of country rock music. I don't know, a number one yep. hit on the Billboard Top 40 is pretty notable success. I think it is. I think yeah. it is. I'm, you know... Yeah. Well, it's one number one. It's just one number one. It could be considered one-hit wonders, except for the fact that he had like 18 wonders or hits. We all thought Too Legit to Quit was going to be something, too. So let's just move (laughs) along. (laughs) But I do think it's cool that, you know, he's one of the pioneers of country rock. I mean, he was, he out-hootied Hootie before Hootie was Hootie. Yeah, well, there you go. The band broke up for unknown reasons. By the way, Graham Nash is rolling in his grave right now. (laughs) The band broke up for unknown reasons, but Nesmith and Rose went on to create the second national band. The group's only album, Tantamount to Trees in Volume 1, was a disaster, both commercially and critically. The next project was an album, and the hits just keep on coming. This album was Nesmith on guitar and Red Rhodes playing the pedal steel guitar. Like so many other artists with long careers, Nesmith eventually became more heavily involved in producing. Electra Records' Jack Holzman was one of Nesmith's fans, and he gave him his own label through Electra. 
Countryside, as it was named, featured a number of artists produced by Mike Nesmith, including his old friend and collaborator, Red Rose. I guess he likes this Red Rose guy. The staff band at Countryside helped Nesmith with his next album, Pretty Much Your Standard Ranch Stash. The label folded when Holzman was replaced by David Geffen, who felt that it was unnecessary. Nesmith also collaborated with Linda Hargrove, writing several songs, including I've Never Loved Anyone More, which became a hit for Lynn Anderson and was recorded by many others. Nesmith only recorded one of the songs he wrote with Hargrove, a tune called Winona. During this same era, 1974, Nesmith started his multimedia company, Pacific Arts. Their first release was what he called, quote, a book with a soundtrack titled The Prison. This company initially released records, eight tracks, and cassettes, but in 1981, they began to publish, quote, video records. Nesmith recorded a number of LPs for this label and had a moderate hit in 1977 with the song Rio. Now, I found this interesting. Nesmith also produced music videos, a burgeoning art form. In 1983, he produced the video for Lionel Richie's All Night Long, and in 1987, he produced the video for Michael Jackson's The Way You Make Me Feel. Nesmith had a large impact on music videos. He had created a video for Rio, which led him to create a television program called Pop Clips for Nickelodeon. In 1980, Pop Clips was sold to Time Warner Amex, who developed it into the MTV Network. Nesmith won the first ever Grammy Award for a long-form music video in 1982 for his hour-long show, Elephant Parts. This also led to a short-lived series on NBC called Television Parts. The concept of this show was to have comics turn their stand-up routines into short comedy films. This series included several comedians who would go on to become famous, though they were somewhat unknown at the time. Jay Leno, Jerry Seinfeld, Gary Shandling, Whoopi Goldberg, and Arsenio Hall. Never heard of these people. All appeared on the show, even though it only ran for eight episodes in the summer of 1985. Pacific Arts Video became a pioneer in the home video market. They produced and distributed a wide variety of products, although it eventually ceased these operations due to a nasty contract dispute with PBS. This dispute over video licensing rights and payments for several series, including Ken Burns' Civil War, eventually developed into a lawsuit. On February 3, 1999, a federal jury awarded Pacific Arts $48.875 million in damages. Nesmith's reaction to the result was widely quoted, It's like finding your grandmother stealing your stereo. You're happy to get your stereo back, but it's sad to find out your grandmother is a thief. PBS appealed the decision, but before the appeal went to court, they reached a settlement with Pacific Arts, although the details of the settlement have never been published. Pacific Art got out of the video distribution market, but it didn't cease to exist. It currently has a project called Video Ranch 3D, allowing online users to enjoy performances at various virtual venues at his ranch. Nesmith's producing credits extend beyond music, and he was an executive producer on the movies Repo Man, Tape Heads, and Time Rider, The Adventure of Lyle Swan. Yeah, he was. <laughs> awesome. Love that movie. I remember that movie. I, I remember that movie from uh, the back page of comic books in that time period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He also co-wrote the screenplay and composed the music for Time Rider, which took place in the Baja 1000. Nesmith's experience with the Baja 1000 did not stop with the movie, though. He and the political satirist P.J. O'Rourke drove his vehicle, the Time Rider, in the Baja 1000 in the early 80s. 
This was an experience O'Rourke later memorialized in his 2009 book, Driving Like Crazy. Perhaps being around a writer rubbed off on Mike, and he's published two novels himself. In the 1990s, Mike hosted the Council on Ideas as part of his role as trustee and president of the Guion Foundation. The Council on Ideas was a gathering of intellectuals from a variety of fields who identified the most important issues of the time and then would publish their results. His participation ended in 2000 when Gihan ended the program and began one for the performing arts. Nesmith also spent a decade as a Board of Trustees member, nominating member and vice chair of the American Film Institute, or the AFI as us in the know call it. Although Nesmith may be most famous for his songs with the monkeys, his contribution to music on his own is very substantial, especially with songs he wrote but didn't perform. These include Mary Mary, which was recorded by the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, Different Drum and Some of Shelley's Blues, recorded by Linda Ronstadt and the Stone Ponies, Pretty Little Princess, written in 1965, but recorded by Frankie Lane in 1968, and then later, some of Shelley's blues and propinquity, I've Just Begun to Care, were made popular by the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band on their 1970 album, Uncle Charlie and His Dog Teddy. You know, I was mentioning earlier that uh, growing up, you know, we watched the monkeys and reruns on TV, and I always just knew Mike Nesmith as the the, the guy in the, the wool hat on the monkeys, right? And then years later, um, in the internet age, you hear the, the urban legend that turns out to be true that... The guy from the monkeys inherited millions of dollars from the liquid paper mm-hmm. fortune, you know, and that that's pretty much my extent of what I thought about Mike, Mike Nesmith until I read more about him, you know, when we were researching Well, let's this. talk about him being in the monkeys because Mike was always my favorite because Mike, <laughs> Mike clearly for the whole series was the guy who did not care that he was there. He was yep. above everything. He was the cool guy in the room. Torque was an idiot. Dolan's was a moron. Jones was a vain, self-interested uh, pretty boy. But Mike was the smart guy who just didn't give a crap. And See, I, this is like yeah. problem, Sean. He was always the one be like, yeah. I'd say his one's always like, come on, man, let's just play the yeah, music. Yeah, let's just play but the music, guys. You're just attracted to like dark artsy types. <laughs> like, you he, he's know, a proto moody slacker. artsy types. He's a proto slacker. That's, that's the thing about Mike. Well, he's I a, think like, you know, the, if, well... We didn't even get in, get a chance to talk about the monkey mobile, which makes me sad. Yeah. But <laughs> the, you know, I, well, I'm like about, you guys. Like, this is about there Mike was that Smith, time when uh, we we're an interesting generation, all of us, yeah. because we're sort of proto cable. Like we got right. we got things before they got really good. We got cable <laughs> before there was Breaking Bad. You know, we got we got video games before like anything was three. You know, it still cost a quarter to play every time, and you know. But that we, was the good thing is it only cost a quarter. It only cost a quarter, but a quarter is worth like two bucks back. You know, now yeah. uh, inflation's a killer. But but the point I guess I'm saying is like we saw a lot of these. This there's a whole there's a whole lot of television that was of kind of our parents generation and like our uncle's generation you know the people we've seen a lot of this tv and we're exposed to a real deep bunch of pop culture because they needed something to fill the time as they built these cable networks out so Mm -hmm. you we saw all of these reruns of things so it's like i shouldn't know as much about old television as i do (laughs) but i know a lot about the monkeys because i've watched a lot of monkeys episodes and they're not great 
Mm-hmm. But, you know, it is, no. Mike stands out. Mike is an interesting per- character. I mean, first of all, like, I was attracted to him when I found out that, oh, he's from Texas. He's a son yeah. of San Antonio. I got a lot, you know, all right, well, great. There, That's him. And, but it's neat to see that he wrote all of these hits and that there, the, there was this musicality and he really was an artist and he was, he, he's the most artistic of all of them, I think. Right. Uh, the myth that I'd always heard was that none of that the, that he was the only one who who knew how to play an instrument, and that the the other ones didn't know. The other ones could play an instrument. And I don't know if Davey ever did, um, but but I think they all eventually learned how to play instruments. But he but he was the one who actually was a songwriter, who was a musician before in a serious way. Uh, Davey Jones was a singer, but he he was a musician. Um, the, the shows are kind of crazy. Um, they're they, they're they're pretty pretty artificially anarchic, but at the same time very anarchic. They're they're not any worse than like anything that's on Disney Junior or uh, not Disney. Well, that's, anything's on ABC Family or or the Disney Channel today. It's, well, it's listen, it's a construct. So it's like mm-hmm. if you watch, you know, well shows the era. You watch the Partridge Family, or you see anything, right. uh, or even. You know, modern musical acts, there's this sort of, what is the legitimacy of a boy band today? You know, there was this, there was that revival of boy bands that happened, and there's sort of these modern pop acts. And there's a lot of criticism, and it's like, well, these are, although, frankly, they weren't that young of guys when they did the Monkees, as compared to the kind of real boy bands they're putting together today, but... they were in their 20s still. I don't know, but that's what I'm saying. It's like, they're not teens. Um you know, uh, but uh, you know he he he'd already been in the military for a couple of years, and he was yeah. you know in college, and that. But but I guess the point I'm making is is that it, his he's bigger than what we see and know of him as uh-huh. that monkey's voice, and so it's right. really interesting is the whole part of his life that happens kind of before and after the monkeys to me. Yeah, I I didn't know that he was associated with the new Christie Minstrels. Um, now, you know, to those of you who don't know the new Christie Minstrels, first of all, go and watch A Mighty Wind uh, because the band, the new Main Street Singers, is based definitely on the new Christie Minstrels. But the funny thing is, is that my father-in-law p- picks through uh, thrift store and garage sale record piles uh, for for diamond quarter records, and he's probably got twenty new Christie Minstrels albums <laughs> because they recorded like fifty albums. Um, yeah. But I didn't know he was part of that folk scene. He was he was a hootmaster. I yeah. want to be the hootmaster. Hootmaster. Yeah. So, you know, he's he's an interesting guy. Um, a lot more interesting than I thought at uh, first. But I, you know, he's not of Texas, as you would say. But he is born in Texas uh, and spent a large portion of his early life in Texas. And I, you know, we'll I, claim yeah. him. We'll take I, him. I think the other interesting thing is, um, so. I had actually knew his importance in the evolution and the development of of music videos and music tele- of MTV. I actually I, th- I read a book about the early history of, the, of MTV, and I'd seen over the years some documentaries and some some articles and stuff about the evolution of MTV and that he how critical he was to that. His his show that that he he sold to Time Warner. Uh, that became yeah pop clips. yeah and and I, I we didn't have Nickelodeon we didn't have cable when I was a kid but I knew Mike Nesmith was important 
I've actually seen all three of those movies that he produced. Now, Repo Man was a pretty big independent <laughs> movie, but, but Tape Heads yeah. is one of John Cusack's earliest movies. It's a movie he did with uh, uh, Tim Robbins. And it's about guys who are making music videos. Um, and it's actually a pretty bad movie. <laughs> But, yeah, well, I, I'm going to tell you yeah, what. I'm, you can stop right there because I don't want you to cast. I don't want you to cast any aspersions on Time Rider. On Time Rider, because I don't you want know, people I, to turn this I, podcast I, off when they hear Sean talking mean about Time Rider, <laughs> The Adventures of Lyle Swan. Yeah, Time Rider for me is one of those movies that I knew about. Like Sean said, there were a lot of ads on the backs of comic books, and I'd seen like trailers for it and stuff, but I've never actually seen I, it. So I think I need to go I and watch it. I think I have seen it. I don't remember it. I remember Fred, watching it, it. And it's one of those. Fred I, Ward. I know, I do know this that I, I rarely had to straighten or move the movie when I worked at the video store, but often had to brush off dust from the case um, <laughs> because it was rarely a rented movie. But uh, yes, in the air, in the mid to late eighties, it was definitely one of those, Oh, this is in the sci-fi section of your local video store. Now, now here's the, the <laughs> here's the thing about, I'm going to give you in Okay, You guys can talk all you want about how you've not seen this movie. Uh, first of all, the cover is incredible. <laughs> There's all this retro, like, 80s stuff going on, but the graphic art on that box is incredible. But the long story short is it's Fred Ward, and I should be able to stop right there and you say, well, I've got to watch this movie. That's all you had to say. That's all I had to say is Fred Ward stars in it. <laughs> He's in a motorcycle race, and he accidentally travels through time to yes. 1877. Yes, I have seen this. And there's all kinds of adventures, and uh, you put your fingers in your ears if you want the spoiler alert, but in a, in a Futurama twist... He becomes his own great great grandfather. <laughs> I have actually seen, and this. Uh, and it's because he has one incredible night with one incredible lady. <laughs> it's got Peter Coyote in it. Like I'm just telling you what, just go watch it, and then Whoa. you can send me a hate tweets about how terrible you think it is. Well, this '80s movie. I want to talk about an earlier movie that that he did that Mike Nesmith was in, and that was Head. And we oh, yeah. all have a friend from college, Laura, who loves this movie um it is definitely like deliberately trippy crazy wild hippie movie like, like tries to be a hippie movie so it does have a cult following it's a pretty crazy weird movie but yeah it, it's it's very interesting movie i don't i don't know if i recommend it but uh but our friend laura definitely would probably recommend it absolutely absolutely um crazy 60s experimental cinema <laughs> i i find it interesting like the idea that he has had like i mean we talked a lot in in the past about texas icons and texas heroes and texas people and what really makes texans texans is you know they either come to texan or they're in texas and they they have a good stretch and then it gets bad and then they just they motor on and they have a second act and, you know, Mike Nesmith has a great second and third act. I mean, he literally said, you know, I'm having to make excuses to the tax man uh, just to kind of get by for a few years. And then it moves into this next thing of, oh, I, oh, by the way, I invented MTV. Did well, I mention that? Yeah. He inherited millions of dollars from his mother and then was able to, oh, I can go do what I want now. And that's what he did. Yeah, I invented I MTV. Mean, I mean, like, and, and like, you look at some of these songs. I mean, it's funny because 
you know, prepping for the show, it was like, what well, wrote all these songs? And she was like, I don't think I know that song. And I don't know that was a big hit. There's one of the songs he wrote, that Mary Mary song. The Mary Mary's a great song. So not it was originally done in I think '66 by the Butterfield Band, but awesome, awesome tune. But everybody, maybe the younger generation, knows it as a number one hit for a little group known as Run DMC, because that's the big hit, the <laughs> Mary Mary. That was one of their. That was the only big hit on that album. Oh, well. Um, I, you know, I, but you know, I, you talk about, you know, we want to, I want to circle back and you talked about the the monkeys as being, they were artificial and they were a board band, but I think they have a little bit more legitimacy than, than the Partridge family or the, um, or the, the Brady Bunch songs in that they had great songwriters writing for them, not just Mike Nesmith, but they, they had Neil Diamond songs that they were, that they were recording, yeah. uh, that he wrote for them. So I, 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 I think that was what always impressed me about the monkeys. And you know, we, you know, we watched the, I watched the monkeys on, we didn't have cable. So it was just on broadcast TV on, on like a Friday afternoons, right at four o'clock. Um, yeah. But I remember actually, you know, when we were, we were young, we were, we were of age at the time to have noticed the monkeys reunion in 86. And I can remember being disappointed that Mike, Nesmith was not part of that reunion. I didn't get to go see them. I would see them on television and stuff like that and talking mm-hmm. about the monkeys and they had a TV special about it. But Mike wasn't there and I, I liked Mike. I thought he was the best character. Well, I mean, you know, you talk about, yeah, that, that classic stuff. I mean, uh, everybody knows, you know, Stepping Stone and I'm a Believer. And it's like... Was Last Train to Clarksville. Last Train to Clarksville. Yeah. You know, it means... Stepping Stone was first done by Paul Revere and the Raiders. I mean, you know, you look at these songs and you look at who wrote or touched them. It's sort of like if you found it, it's kind of like when you found out that uh, Morgan Freeman was on Sesame Street. You're like, or no, Electric Company. Mm-hmm. And you're like, yeah. or Lawrence Fishburne oh, wow. was well, on you, Pee Wee Herman. Right. But yeah, but you, yeah, exactly. You find out like these really famous people are in this stuff. You're like, I don't associate all this talent with something. But, you know, the the beauty of history is is that we have this luxury of time to look back at stuff and sort of say you know gosh look at look at the talent and the people that sort of were a part and touched this i i just wish um, it were easier for us in today's day and age to find out this information at the touch of our fingertips don't you i know <laughs> if only there was some kind of global data network yeah, repository of give you data. yeah i know right yeah. Some kind of yeah. library. I will say that a while back, um, you know, obtained, uh, I guess, the Monkeys' Greatest Hits or whatever that had a bunch of their songs from the shows and stuff. And one of my favorites still and continues to be um, Listen to the Band, mm. which was one of them that, uh, that Nesmith wrote. And I, I really like that song. It's got a nice That is group. a great song. I mean, yeah. If you if you actually get that one of those the monkeys' greatest hits, you're gonna find that you know every song on there, that you recognize them instantly, and that it's, you know, it is it is they they are a quintessential pop group, and they all their songs have tremendous hooks, and it just drags you in, and it stays in your brain, uh, and they're and they're fun. I I, I like the show. I always like the show. I thought it was a, a great fun show. I'm kind of hoping Christopher Nolan comes along and does a very gritty reboot. 
<laughs> okay. Well, maybe. We all will have to see. That's a, that's a 1960s Batman more, joke for those out there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. More likely, I would say more <laughs> likely we will get a uh, a monkey's reboot on uh, the Disney Channel starring a bunch of preteen uh, actually, musical prodigies. Actually, I think prodigies. they've done that multiple times, so... Uh, yes. Uh, well, listen, you know, he's known for the monkeys, but there's much more to the man. So, uh, Mike Nesmith, we salute you at Come and Take It. Time Rider. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. We'd like to thank our friend James Abendroth for helping us to research and write this episode. You can find him on Twitter at Blackguard Press and find his fiction work at blackguardpress.com. You love this show. You love Texas. And maybe you even love the monkeys. Tell your friends, and please leave a review on iTunes, because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please go to patreon.com and sign up to be a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.